You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hello, everyone. My name is Evan Bernard, and I'm a research fellow with the Center for Climate and Security at the Council on Strategic Risks. In this episode, you will hear a conversation between Amali Tower, Kaylee Ober, and myself about climate migration and security, with a particular focus on the human security aspect of migration in the climate context. After an introduction to the climate migration and security nexus through a Central American lens, we examine the Biden administration's new Root Causes Central American Migration Strategy Report and recent climate-focused migration insights. We then consider the potential for effective climate finance implementation and the implications of the new Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report's grave predictions for climate-related migration policy. If you are interested in reading more about this topic, I encourage you to read the Biden administration's Root Causes Migration Strategy, as well as Ms. Tower and Ms. Ober's recent migration reports. Let's go to the interview. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Ms. Amali Tower and Ms. Kaylee Ober. Amali Tower is the Executive Director at Climate Refugees, as well as a member of the World Economic Forum and its expert network in migration, human rights, and humanitarian response. Ms. Tower has extensive experience promoting the rights and protection of refugees and forcibly displaced persons in a variety of contexts, including resettlement, protection, evaluation, and research with UNHCR, various NGOs, and the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program throughout Africa, Asia, and the Middle East in the U.S. She has resettled refugees, campaigned for refugee and asylum protections written in past U.S. legislation to curb immigration detention. Kaylee Ober is the Senior Advocate and Program Manager of the Climate Displacement Program at Refugees International. Prior to Refugees International, she worked as a policy specialist for the Asian Development Bank and as a consultant at the World Bank, where she authored the flagship report, Groundswell, preparing for internal climate migration. She has also previously worked at the Overseas Development Institute, Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and World Resources Institute, among others. In security parlance, climate change is considered a threat multiplier. In many cases, climate change is not the sole or primary cause of insecurity, but it can exacerbate the conditions. Increasingly, insecurities in Central America are driving human migration, and I hope today's discussion will help explore the human security aspect of climate migration. Before we dive into the climate migration issues in Central America in particular, let's start with the basics. Amali, can you please briefly walk our audience through the links between climate change, migration, and security? 
Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Thank you so much for having me on, Evan. It's a pleasure to be here. As you rightly said, it's been said that climate change is a threat multiplier. And I would add that climate change actually heightens vulnerabilities. And it tends to do this in places that have pre-existing vulnerabilities. We know that climate change and climate-related migration is already happening. We also know it's already impacting countries vulnerable to conflict. For example, 12 of the 20 countries most vulnerable to climate change are also in conflict. And many of those already host UN peacekeeping or UN stabilizing political missions. Another statistic I can tell you that confirms this, right, is that 70% of the countries most vulnerable to climate change are also fragile countries. And what that means then are countries where the risks, where, where the, the coping mechanisms are overwhelmed. So in conflict or fragile settings, climate change then we can say hinders resiliency and adaptive measures because it has the capacity to create many socioeconomic and political disruptions. And we're really seeing this play out right now all throughout the world. What I'm describing then in, in turn can bring about situations that heighten migration and force displacement even outside of disaster contexts. So Central American countries are no exception here. And, and Central American countries where development lags behind even in Latin America, poverty, instability, and climate risks are acute. This is a region that has for a very long time been flagged for the the very heightened risks for climate-related disasters, weather-related disasters, I could say more broadly. Now, rural poverty is on average at least 10% or more higher in Central American countries. And rural communities here are largely indigenous communities, which are historically oppressed, marginalized, disenfranchised. There are legacies of even historical massacres of indigenous communities. Now, in some cases, we lack information to like acutely describe to you how disenfranchised populations are. In some cases, we lack information to know just how many distinct indigenous groups even reside in a given area. And, and a lot of these regions are made up of subsistence farmers, mostly indigenous and Afro-Caribbean communities in what's called the dry corridor. And in this dry corridor, which is really from like Chiapas, Mexico, um, and, and runs all throughout El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Caragua, there have been successive droughts lasting multiple years. And this has led to deep food insecurity. And this latest drought has really led to at least 1.5 to 2 million people that WFP and FAO say are dependent on food aid. This is also exacerbated by a coffee rust outbreak, which some of which was simultaneous, which impacted harvest and trade. I mean, largely speaking, two out of every three people here are in need of food assistance. And you have to understand this drought, Evan, that these are slow onset effects of climate change. And you have to understand this through the lens of the human rights conditions in this region, where these indigenous groups, these subsistence farmers lack land tenure. They lack insurance for failed crops. These are incredibly poor, marginalized populations, as I said, where criminal elements that once patrolled other illicit trade now control the same area where huge extractive industries, energy projects like hydro dams, mega development projects and tourism and monoculture, agribusiness and such coexist on in, in the same region on the same land. Now, in this context, then you have to think about land tenure is about taking land away by force for the expansion of industries, which is rooted in this historical human rights abuses that I'm speaking about. And some of that is on the basis of ethnicity, which brings us back to like a persecution element. And with adequate land and poverty comes, or rather inadequate land and poverty, right, comes with comes the limited options to climate adapt. I mean, even if one were to try and like change crops in, in scenarios where we've had, we've seen this happen in the last few years, scorching temperatures that actually score 
scorch the land, scorch the crops. And that was followed by this excessive rain because there's also been like climate variability issues here. So when the rains come, it is like washed away all the soil. It has washed all the seeds that were then planted. So you had yet another failed harvest. You can't actually adapt or change crops because you're also dealing with incredibly small plots of land. You have to recognize, right, that the adaptability is also limited then by the human rights conditions. And, and then add to all this, the increasing vulnerability that I alluded to earlier um, of the sudden onset disasters fueled by climate change. Last year, you had twin hurricanes, Eta and Iota, which struck the same region back to back, two weeks apart, devastated the region, completely impacting over 4 million people, like in the days and weeks following the, both those storms. And since then, it has just, you're seeing the impacts of that play out. And that was last November. You're seeing the impacts of that in a COVID-19 pandemic, and you're seeing the impacts of long-rooted underdevelopment, instability, disenfranchised populations that are frankly, have absolutely no other means. There is a lot of internal displacement and internal migration as well. And what you're talking about are populations who are trying to survive. And with no other means, you're seeing that play out now also with cross-border migration at the U.S. border. And it's paramount that we recognize that this is not just people fleeing violence and, and, and insecurity as, as they are as well, but, but there are other elements to this, as I just played out for you. Amali, thank you for explaining the ability to adapt to slow and rapid onset effects of climate change and perhaps the inability in many cases, given the rapidly changing conditions from climate change. Now, Kaylee, how have you seen these dynamics play out in the dry corridor and other parts of Central America over the past few years? I think Molly gave a pretty good overview of, of what's going on in Central America, especially in the dry corridor. And I think I just want to underscore some of the points that she made, which is principally that this is um, a region that has suffered historical um, interventions by the U.S. and other actors which have put it you know, on its back foot, essentially. So the, the issues that we're talking about, deep systemic poverty inability to access land or limited land tenure, having indigenous and Afro-Latino populations being particularly hard hit by uh, the changing impacts of climate change because they've been so marginalized traditionally by uh, right-wing governments in the region. These are all long-standing systemic issues that the U.S. government has, yes, played a hand in, but also has the, had the ability to support in some way, shape, or form over the last few years. And in fact, as Amali noted, the dry corridor has been suffering from repeated recurring droughts for six, seven, eight years. The impacts of climate change were, you know, not some sort of future unknown, but something that the, the region has been dealing with and that governments and the U.S. and the international community could have intervened at some point to help build up capacity um, and support adaptation in some way. Unfortunately, it hasn't gained the momentum or prominence that it should have in the region. And so this is why something like hurricanes Eta and Iota can be kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. You already see population that are, as Amali said, in deep poverty, are in the midst of endemic corruption and no support from the government, you know, maybe in the midst of violence and crime due to drugs and gangs, may face different forms of persecution based on their social group. And unfortunately, they haven't had access to the resources necessary to overcome those things. And in fact, in some cases, it has been made worse purposely by the governments that are supposed to be the ones uh, responsible for helping them. And so that's what Amali was referencing 
saying before, which is essentially climate change is rarely, if ever, the only uh, driver of migration, but it does exacerbate existing vulnerabilities and in fact can make a situation or a context even worse or harder to address by any government that's unwilling to do it. And so in, in some way, shape or form, the government that is supposed to be helping populations that are affected by climate change impacts, if they're not doing so, it can be tantamount to persecution in some ways. And I think that's something Amali and I agree upon, which is, you know, climate change, although it hasn't received as much as attention or it might not be within certain international frameworks, it essentially is a complementary part of existing um, protections in some way. Yes, thank you, Kaylee. That was a great overview of these dynamics in Central America. You both make really great points about the nexus of social, political, food, and climate security in Central America. And these factors are considered by some policymakers to be root causes of migration. Back in February, the Biden administration released an executive order to create a comprehensive regional framework to address the causes of human migration in Central America. The Biden administration subsequently released a second executive order on migration refugees, calling for an investigation into how climate change is affecting migration. As part of the fulfillment of the first order, the Biden administration just released a U.S. strategy for addressing the root causes of migration in Central America. Amali, how are the links between climate change and migration portrayed in the report? And what are your thoughts on the climate-related recommendations? At first glance, I would say, Evan, that I found the root causes strategy to be quite light overall, and, and especially quite light when it comes to climate change. I read it, actually, having just returned from Reynosa, which is a border town in Mexico, a very dangerous border town, where there are a, a number of Central American migrants, many of whom did speak about climate drivers. It was sort of like extra surprising to read that report in, in that context. So I could say overall, the strategy does seem to address multiple important issues that are certainly contributing drivers or, or shall we say push factors of migration. But like I said, it's, it is incredibly light on climate change. And I think it says alarmingly, it says nothing about U.S. efforts to lower emissions or efforts to respond, to, to support, to help build resilience and adaptation as per existing international agreements. On its specifics, it's a bit concerning. While it doesn't spell out exactly what some of these economic development efforts are going to be, it does hearken to previous economic development efforts in this region that have had limited success to curb migration. I say that because a lot of the past efforts have been addressing root causes have been in order to curb migration. And I think that that says a lot about what are the drivers in US policy. For example, what I mean by that is we have to centrally ask ourselves, are we trying to really get to the root causes of what is behind the pain and suffering and the difficulties, the poverty, the systemic issues that Kaylee and I were both speaking to earlier that are contributing to the conditions and the, and, the, and the drivers and the situations that are forcing people to have to move? Or are we instead trying to put forth policies that just simply stop people from coming to the United States? Because in my mind, those are two centrally different questions. And therefore, they inform our decision making very differently. And I think that, that that's reflective in this root strategy. There's maybe like the economic development efforts are there's an over-reliance again on maybe on private corporations as solutions, which makes me concerned for whether those development programs would actually reach the intended audiences and reach the places that have up 
up hitherto, not really seen a lot of that money, uh, has not really seen those gains. We saw this happen in the past as well, like in the Alliance for Prosperity, and like we've spelled out in the dry corridor, you know, in these indigenous communities. That's demonstrated by the fact that, you know, in the root cause of strategy, there is no real discussion of the dry corridor of indigenous populations, of speaking to these populations and having a strategy that precisely works to work directly and incorporate the knowledge of Indigenous and Afro-Caribbean communities, leaders, environmental leaders, farmers, right, as partners rather than like passive recipients, so that you can actually identify concerns, problems, ensure their full collaboration, not just participation, but collaborative solutions that are sustainable. And then furthermore, measures that really do ensure full and meaningful participation of these communities, and most importantly, women. Women as partners, women as leaders, women very often are the ones who have very innovative solutions because they have actually been at the front lines of resilient measures for survival in the absence of development, in the absence of all those years where you have been overlooked. So I think there are a lot of things that the strategy has overlooked by absolutely not even mentioning these things. Finally, I think the strategy is geared towards Northern Triangle countries, obviously, which in the past has always tended to not include Nicaragua, but given the existing, not to mention increasing migration from Nicaragua and the utter devastation that followed the twin hurricanes last year. That also seems surprising, uh, maybe short-sighted, maybe missed opportunity, or it leads me to wonder, is Nicaragua being, is that being included somewhere else, something that I'm not aware of? So it it, it brings up a question. And I'll, I'll just say finally, that said, the multilateral partners mentioned of several other states as well was, was intriguing, especially geopolitically. Some of those countries mentioned, like Japan, was rather intriguing and surprising and it'd be interesting to hear more about that. As I said, I think the strategy is a little light on details, but I also got the impression it's the beginning of things to come. Thanks, Somali. What I am hearing is the report does not adequately address the climate and population-specific concerns in the region, and the report seems to leave out a few key populations in the analysis and strategy. Haley, what was your impression of the report? I think I take a similar stance to Amalia and will add that generally I'm very skeptical of the framing of root causes and an overemphasis on targeting root causes because it essentially is, as Molly alluded to, an attempt to ensure that as little people as possible migrate to the U.S. And that's really at the core of this strategy and any root cause strategy. And I think one, it's one dimensional. I think uh, development economists have shown time and again that investment in countries that and that then experience a development bump actually results in an increase in migration, not a decrease. And secondly, is is quite destructive and problematic. People should have the right to migrate and the U.S. must be realistic about that and acknowledge that reality. The region has always been deeply connected to the U.S. There are deep diaspora and communities and social networks that are connected to the region. Um, And any sort of root causes strategy that doesn't acknowledge that is a flawed one. So that's kind of my fresh take from that. And I would say also the climate change portion of the report, as Amali said, is really light. Um, And in fact, is also not comprehensive by any sense of the word. It seems that to the administration, climate change adaptation is synonymous with agricultural development and really heavily relies on technocratic interventions. You know, that's just not true. Deep social inequalities, longstanding histories of access to land, as Amali said earlier, really make it harder 
order to adapt, not just having the right agricultural inputs, the right irrigation system, et cetera, et cetera. And likewise, Central America is one of the most highly mobile and urbanized regions in the world. And so to just focus on kind of the rural dimensions of agriculture is also quite one-dimensional. Thank you, Kaylee. Now, Kaylee, your panel just released a report on the climate crisis and global migration. Can you please provide an overview of the key recommendations in the report, particularly as they relate to security? Sure. The task force on climate change and migration was a 15-member task force put together by Refugees International, my organization, comprised of former high-level officials in the government, including USAID and the State Department, uh, heads of some major NGOs, and those who are technical experts in the area of climate change and migration. And through a series of consultations with them, we were able to generate a long list of recommendations that we hope the Biden administration will take up, in particular with their report they requested through their executive order um, on climate change and migration. And I think the report really underscores a few points. One is that we are in the midst of a climate crisis. Two, climate-related events are already affecting the trends and patterns of mobility. And three, that the U.S., in particular, the international community in general, has a responsibility and the uh, capacity to deal with the challenge of climate-related migration. And we envision dealing with that challenge in a variety of ways uh, and really parse it out into two big buckets of work. The first bucket would be on what we term prevention. Uh, now, this is not to say preventing migration in general, but just to say that we need to avert and minimize forced displacement and forced migration as much as possible in the context of climate change, because um, ultimately we want people to have the ability to adapt to a changing climate if they would like to and stay in place or move if that's the best outcome for them. And so the prevention part of the report really focuses on a few key things, one of which is disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation, really increasing the U.S.'s support for those two key items, but also really focusing on development assistance more generally and ensuring targeted support to the most vulnerable communities that the USAID serves, for instance. We also advocate for a global disaster risk reduction and resilience fund in which the U.S. could play a leadership role to really catalyze investment in disaster risk reduction, which which really lags behind other sorts of investments. Um, and there has been some great strides and lessons learned in, for instance, the HIV AIDS world when it comes to the Global Fund for AIDS and the ability to mobilize funding for HIV AIDS, tuberculosis, and, and other sorts of infectious diseases of that sort, and it raises $4 billion a year already. So we know that the international community is able to rise to the occasion. And then there's a second bucket of work, which I think is hugely important given the already existing climate change impacts and the ways in which it's already affecting mobility around the world, and that's protection and pathways of migration. And we advocate for the Biden administration to support integrating or capacity building and training for those that are assessing resettlement and asylum applications on the basis of the 1951 Refugee Convention to be aligned with recent guidance released by the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, around applicability of climate change in the context of international protection. We also advocate for the Biden administration to support Congress in putting together a complementary protection standard in which we um, are able to extend protection for folks who are applying for asylum or refugee status on the basis of a, a broader set of variables and factors, including but not limited to climate change and natural disasters and various other things. But essentially what this report makes
makes the case that it is a U.S. prerogative. The Biden administration has the ability to plant a flag in sand and show and demonstrate leadership on this issue, especially on the international stage. Of course, the report goes into much more detail about different sorts of recommendations, even touched on things like planned relocation, internal displacement and policies around internal displacement, and enhanced global coordination and action. So I encourage those who are listening to the podcast to go ahead and to access the report, which can be found at our website, refugeesinternational.com. I definitely recommend all of the listeners go check out that report. It's almost like you are suggesting changing the norms around capacity for climate-related migration. Amali, your recent climate change, forced displacement, and peace and security report covers climate change, migration, and human security with recommendations for the Biden administration on using diplomacy and humanitarian assistance to address human migration. Where has the United States taken substantial steps to address climate change and migration, and what would you suggest its next steps should be? I think it remains to be seen whether the United States has taken steps to address climate change and migration. I think the United States has signaled that it would like to know more about what role climate change plays in contributing to migration and in all its forms. And I think that's demonstrated in the February executive order that you alluded to, Evan. However, a report which is expected, an interagency report, which the president asked for in that executive order, which does answer that question rather holistically from five different U.S. government agencies is expected and and is not out yet, as we we might have expected by now. I think a lot of the things that, you know, Kelly and I are talking about, especially specifically to Central America, which of course strategically speaks volumes about what the United States is dealing with at its U.S. southern border is demonstrative of how there are intersections, right, of how U.S. asylum law, how international refugee law does apply here, where there are nexus grounds for international protection, where climate change is a contributing driver to a multi-causal complex scenario scenarios in which people are on the move. And I would say, I think it's very important to pause and reflect here and recognize that on the whole, Evan, when people move, traditionally, people do not move for one reason, you know, in, in any region, in any conflict, in any scenario. It's as simple as this. You and I, right, when, when we choose to move, when we have full agency and we might move homes or we might move cities, states, countries, what have you, I would say to anybody listening right now, there is no way I would challenge you to think about this. You did not make that decision based on one factor. You did not make that decision lightly. You did not make that decision over a split second. There were many factors, thought, variables, people, circumstances, pushes, and pulls that contributed to that decision. And I'm talking about a positive, voluntary choice. Now enter scenarios that are not so positive, right? Conflict scenarios, complex humanitarian crises, complex climate change contributing scenarios that we've we've been talking about. Take very specifically what's happening in Central America. In my experience, I have never spoken to anybody who, who left their home, who were internally displaced or crossed an international boundary and did so on the instance of first sign of trouble, did so on the 
the instance of like first attack or first uh, weather related disaster or first failed crop or it is a series of events, a series of extenuating and increasing vulnerabilities and threats. And when it overwhelms your capacity to manage, to survive, that's generally when people are forced to move. And, and it's really, really important that we recognize this, that people are not coming here in the pursuit of making, you know, uh, a choice. They're not coming to the United States because they're searching for a quote unquote better life. That's one thing. Second thing, they're not coming here because of one particular driver, that being, you know, only some insecurity or a criminal element or some violence or a conflict. There are multiple scenarios, as I've been trying to demonstrate. That is the case now with, with the climate change context as well. And then the, and the news is that has kind of always been the way it is. So it's really important that we recognize that, you know, this isn't sort of new phenomena. Yes, climate change is, we're seeing the effects of it. And that might be sort of rather new to us, but it's not new to the people that it's happening to, number one. And number, and number two, um, it's not new in, in just sort of displacement dynamics. People have always been impacted in these ways. So it's incredibly important that we recognize those things. And then that, then we sort of like look at the landscape and see there are actually ways in which international protection mechanisms do intersect. And, and the example I, I gave earlier about indigenous populations who have historic human rights abuses, where country of origin information would demonstrate that there are persecution elements here on the basis of social group, on the basis of ethnicity, on the basis of political opinion, if you're an environmental defender, that might intersect here with climate change drivers as well. So we do have existing bodies of law that can apply right now in uh, the U.S. context here at the U.S. southern border. And, and this is exactly what, you know, I and Kaylee and, and other colleagues and advocates are, are all saying in, in our own individual reports and, and as well as collectively. And we really hope that not just the Biden administration, but the governments all around the world do hear that and recognize that because this is what's going on right now. Thank you, Molly. I love that you use the term multi-causal scenarios. It's a great way to explain how these vulnerabilities that you mentioned are so complex. And I think your explanation is such a key contribution to this discussion. And it's really important to consider not just the as, as you say, it's not just the climate aspect. It's not just any one factor. It's all the different factors. And it's not just a single decision. It's many decisions. Now, I would like to transition to the topic of climate finance, which is a critical factor in accomplishing many adaptation and mitigation efforts. Kaylee, as you mentioned, one of the recommendations in your report is that the United States increase financing for disaster risk reduction. What would a successful, ambitious climate finance increase look like, and what must be done for proper implementation? Thanks, Evan. So I should just state that the Biden administration proposed FY 2022 budget includes $2.5 billion for international climate uh, funding, part of which is for climate change adaptation. And we try to parse that out a little bit, but it's complicated. But essentially what we propose is that, so, so it's not just an, a matter of the amount of funding, but kind of the ways in which funding is allocated. And so we propose at least 10% of existing humanitarian assistance, which should be at least for disaster risk reduction. 
it's a modest amount actually that we're we're asking for. We also think uh, generally that the U.S.'s budget should increase for climate change adaptation programming in general, and in particular in accordance with the promised COP21 Paris Agreement pledge of 100 billion dollars per year. Uh, at the moment, the U.S. has the opportunity to increase its overall budget, but also to increase investment in things like the Green Climate Fund, for instance, uh, has a bank account which is far below promised amounts in the past, and the U.S. has not even adhered to the Obama administration era pledges of dollar amounts. So for instance, during the Obama administration, President Obama pledged $3 billion to the Green Climate Fund, and the Biden administration has proposed a modest amount towards that, towards achieving that goal, but not the whole amount. And then also to increase or begin funding smaller adaptation funds, which we think are more nimble and more connected to local level actors and processes, such as the Adaptation Fund. So even a hundred million dollar uh, investment in the adaptation fund would would go a long way. So we, we suggest it in various ways, and as I said, not just increase the dollar amount, but also the ways in which we invest and where we invest. Thank you, Kaylee. So it's not just about the amount; it's about where you invest it. Amali, in accordance with the Center for Climate and Security's Climate Security Plan for America, you recommend multilateral aid approaches like greater involvement in and contribution to United Nations Security Council climate bodies, as well as humanitarian aid approaches. Why does the United States need to focus on both sides of the climate finance coin, and how does this approach address the root causes of migration? That recommendation is largely driven or supported by the fact that there's some very substantial and obviously influential work happening at the UN, specifically at the UN Security Council, and increasingly so. The UN Security Council has been taking up this issue of climate change, climate change and security with some great resistance, generally speaking since 2007. And it has really sort of been increasing in terms of its effectiveness and its actions and you have UN member states now that have really started to really examine the impacts that climate change has in, in very specific scenarios, in very specific countries, in conflict and peacekeeping scenarios, going so far as to even embed um, environmental officers in peacekeeping missions, looking at how climate change sort of intersects with various other, other variables and drivers all throughout through the lens of international peace and security. And I think that there are really strong opportunities opportunities here to link the very disparate work at the United Nations in development, in human rights, in, in the sustainable development goals, in, in migration response, and so on and so forth. And a lot of that is spelled out in the report. And by and large, a lot of this work has been ongoing and has been traditionally tending to happen rather unlinked, sometimes even in silos. And given the scope, the reach, and the influence and power that the UN Security Council has, and, and the reach that you, you know, UN Security Council member states have, I think that this is an area, th there's an opportunity here. Furthermore, more than that, I think it, it's really important to, to look at how much countries that are on the front lines of the impacts of climate change have been actually utilizing the mechanisms that have come out of UN Security Council measures to exercise or use those, leverage those opportunities to try and mitigate the impacts. So you're I'm talking about the climate vulnerable 
Global Forum, which is a body of uh, UN states that are very much at the forefront of dealing with the impacts of this. I'm talking about the alliance of small island states. I'm talking then also about these blocks going to the UN Security Council and even using the UN Security Council in high-level open debates to bring up things that traditionally wouldn't even really be discussed in a body that convenes to speak about international peace and security to talk about things like loss and damage, which is something that comes out of the United Nations framework on climate change, and to talk about how migration and forced migration is maybe something that needs to be discussed now in at the loss and damage mechanism. And that's incredibly new and surprising and is possibly indicative of the fact that, you know, we've had such sort of very slow and incremental, or, or I would say a lack of progress, and, and maybe also harkens in my mind to a lot of the sort of unfairness and injustice that seems to go unspoken here about how much countries are disproportionately dealing here with the impacts of climate change having contributed so very little towards it. When you do go so long without adequate measures to respond to it, without adequate finance, as Kaylee was speaking, when the very minimal climate finance is really asking you to mitigate when point of fact, your emissions are incredibly low, when point of fact, what you really need money for is adaptation and adaptation is extremely expensive and adaptation is extremely unfunded and adaptation is what you need to strengthen and build resiliency, to save lives, to help people rebuild after disasters, to ensure that development gains are not actually development setbacks after disaster. And these are the trends that we're seeing. So for all of those reasons, that is really the driving force behind why I did look at what is happening at the UN Security Council and what are some of the sort of climate security plan recommendations that have long existed that aren't things that traditionally human rights and migration folks like me have been looking at. And I did see those sort of like interesting linkages. And I also did see that, you know, the United States uh, under the previous administration as well, wasn't working in the UN Security Council in those areas. And so some of my recommendations were, hey, join the group of friends at the UN Security Council on this and this and this, you know, and and in some of those things, it's, it's been really welcome to see that the Biden administration has done that. So yeah, you know, for, for all of these various reasons, Evan, it's, it's not a really like one clear answer. You know, these things are all sort of interconnected and and really speak to the fact that a lot of this work has not really developed the strong linkages that it needs in order to be as robust as it could be. Thank you, Amali. The dollars and diplomacy approach that the U.S. seems to need to take is an interesting one, and hopefully it will be able to take that approach in the relatively near term. The new IPCC report just came out this week, and if predictions in the new IPCC report are any indication of what is to come and how soon, there will be no shortage of insecurity compounding climate change impacts anytime soon. If there is no simple panacea for climate migration, are there key variables that policymakers should factor into the climate change and migration policy equation? Amali? I think what we're missing is naming, right, where there's some culpability and responsibility here. And I don't think we can actually tackle a problem until we name it. We have to name who were some some responsible parties here. So there are some responsible states and there are also some responsible corporations here. And it's not enough for the narrative to be just human-induced activities. Um, That doesn't actually, like, give us any specificity. Now, the report's 1,300 plus pages. It's not going to get it done for there to be a few talking points that only some people know because 
because of some flashy headlines or because some people might read the 40-something summary report. We need a people's movement. We need collective understanding. We need, I mean, you you well know, you just you just demonstrated in your question how grave the situation is. And, you know, we'll, we'll have forthcoming reports about the, the human effects of this, the societal impacts of this. My, my next question would be, you know, so what next? Um, and in order to answer that question, I think you have to have more concrete information as to like, where is this all coming from? What do we actually do? Because if the message is, it's kind of too late, a lot of these impacts are already going to happen. You also have the unintended consequence then of a large sector of the population just going, well, then, okay, I'll just sort of give up, you know, and that's certainly not what we want, because that's actually not even true, right? We can still greatly minimize the impacts of this. And let's not forget, as I've said, (laughs) climate change may affect us all, but it does not affect us all equally, because we never began at the same starting line. Thank you, Amali. Now, Kaylee, climate security is a human security issue, and human security is a human right. If there is no panacea for climate migration, then what next steps do you think policymakers should take? Thanks, Evan. First and foremost, policymakers have to have political will around the issue of migrants' rights and supporting safe and legal pathways of migration. So, you know, the Global Compact for for Migration has gone a long way in kind of spelling out the ways in which those rights might be envisioned or the way in which governments should be interacting with the issue of migration governance. And in particular, it even references climate change in a variety of ways in, in the document. The thing that hasn't really happened is capitalizing on such a document and doing an internal accounting and implementation of promises or visions outlined of such a document. And so I think even we can see this playing out with the Biden administration on the one hand, saying that they would like to put together a report on climate change and migration, which includes policy options around resettlement and protection, which is very specific and quite evolved from any sort of predecessor of President Biden, but at the same time, not rescinding Trump era policies, including Title 42 around COVID-19 and the ability to apply for asylum in the midst of a pandemic, and even releasing this Roots Causes report, which essentially is a a veiled way of dealing with or kowtowing to kind of anti-migration factions in in U.S. politics. And so I think the political will piece is big, and I think the migration governance piece is big, and that's something that we haven't really seen a keen awareness or focus on. And I'd like to talk a little bit about ways in which which we could do it, obviously, through a human rights-based approach, through protection and migration pathways, as I alluded to before, but also through basic support and interventions, even within our humanitarian assistance, development assistance frameworks, for instance, even acknowledging that migration can be a means of adaptation. Migration isn't always a negative phenomena, and planning our development priorities around that reality. Um, and that would include not only not villainizing or demonizing migration, but also implementing policy that support migrants in places of destination, for instance. So really leaning into labor rights, for instance, ensuring that people who migrate aren't in a state of precarity, ensuring that any sort of social protections they might have at home travel with them to places of destination, for instance. So there's a variety of ways this can be tackled, and I think it's within the U.S.'s capacity and remit to do so. That goes for other countries as well, not just the U.S. Thank you, Kaylee. So the political will, the migration governments and implementation of adjusted migration frameworks, that's a kind of a great call to action for policymakers. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to add for the listeners? Amali? 
Just to totally echo and agree with Haley that this will, I mean, I think the executive order demonstrates that politicians, policymakers, I think are keenly aware of the impacts that climate change already have on migration, already have on vulnerable populations' lives. And yet we are seeing that closed borders and we're seeing policies that are completely still prohibiting people from moving and in fact putting people into more dangerous pathways. If we are to recognize that migration is a form of adaptation, then that means we have to recognize that that has to be financed because migration is expensive. The people who do migrate are those who actually have a, have, have some means. A lot of populations here, we would be remiss to not mention, run the risk of being trapped populations. And, and that is actually a far bigger risk than we've even been talking about. That's one thing. And then the second thing being along with finance then has to come with policies that are far more inclusive. Those pathways that Kelly was talking about, that starts with more open border, predictive pathways. Predictive pathways means it's because we and we do understand these complex multi-causal drivers, climate change now being one. This really does come down to political well, and this does come down to the fact that we, we already know this and, and it's time that we adapt and we change. That goes for everybody. Thank you, Amali. Kaylee? We have a lot of high hopes for the Biden administration, uh, including around this requested report within the executive order on climate change and migration. And I should note that it's now a week late for delivery. Um, we're not quite clear when it's going to be delivered, but we have high hopes because there have been several consultations with civil society around this issue. And there are existing templates we have. Those that are concerned on this issue and have been working on this issue for decades have put together specifically for the Biden administration. And the hope is that those recommendations will be taken up and taken up seriously, and that this could then serve for a coherent, comprehensive policy agenda, which could be replicable or catalyze other countries around the world to, to really to really invest in and take seriously. Uh, and so this is only just the first step. And hopefully I'll stay optimistic on this. You know, the, the only way from here is forward. Thank you, Kaylee. Kaylee and Amali, I greatly enjoyed this insightful discussion. I look forward to future discussions. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you so much, Evan, for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Evan. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.